0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in with us here at Berean Bible Church. We are going to do something a little different this morning. As the title states, we're going to take a little lesson in history. Now, I didn't mention in here what this lesson is, mainly because I hope that this topic is one that people may immediately tune off if they find out. So, now that you're here, and now that you're watching, yeah, <laughs> don't turn me off immediately, because we are literally, just hear me out, because we are going to, we're not defending or expounding any theological system, there's no... There's actually no scripture references in the message today. That's why Dave had to read so much in the beginning. Yeah. Well, here's what happens when, you know, an emergency comes up and you throw Jeff into, uh, you know, do something quick. No, but anyway, so um, this is strictly a history lesson behind a theological position. Now, the reason is because you all may be surprised, and not necessarily people here, people who might be watching, as as we are at times surprised at just how often we get cards, letters, emails from people who have just recently discovered us. We've been here, what, 20-some years, and it's like, oh, we just discovered your teaching and we love it, yada, yada. So, the thing is, they've just discovered us. So, with all the different doctrines that can come from this pulpit, <laughs> obviously not everyone that listens or just tunes in is necessarily on the same level. So... There are many theological terms that get thrown around from the pulpit here, and they may sound very common to us because, you know, we've been here for a while and because of our backgrounds and stuff along that line. But there are people who may be hearing them for the first time. So since in the most recent two messages that Dave gave, he was uh, giving some pretty uh, detailed topics, I decided this would be a good timely message because it regards that. You see, for the past two weeks, he's been talking extensively and giving defenses of Calvinism, and along the way, its, our, its counterpart, Arminianism. Now, regardless, you, know, you probably turned off already, but anyway, talking to you, <laughs> regardless of which debate, which side of the debate you're on, just hear me out. Again, this is going to be a history lesson, because some people have weird ideas about this whole thing. Um, I'm not going to be defending either position. Now, back in 2012, Dave gave a message on Reformation Day, right around October, um, regarding the history of the Reformation. And in it, he discussed Martin Luther, many of the key aspects of what occurred in those days that ultimately led to the time in church history known as the Reformation. He also covered many of the key doctrines of Reformed theology and the biblical basis for them. So if you're looking for a more concise discussion of scriptural proofs behind some of today's discussion, then go back to October 2012, and that'd be a good place to start. I mean, it's sprinkled all throughout. You'll find a lot of it in the Gospel of John series that was finished, you know, months ago. But this morning, we're just not looking at the scriptural proofs. We're just going to look at what the history and formation of what is commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. Um, <clears throat> as you probably may already know, the term Calvinism and Arminianism came from the names of two men in history. Calvinism, of course, from French theologian John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564. And Arminianism from the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, who lived from 1560 to 1609. As you can see, these two men were not really contemporaries. They lived not, they didn't have any direct interaction with each other. They lived at different times, in different cities, different countries. Um, There was no great debate between John, Calvin, and Arminius. Um, So, the Calvinism and Arminianism controversy and the surrounding five points, while drawing their names from these two men, were movements not actually created nor defended by either of these men. No, it was not until one year after the death of Jacobus Arminius, which was nearly 50 years after the death of Calvin, that we find the Arminian controversy, as we know it, to begin. And even though it is popular to hear the term, the five points of Calvinism, these five points were not a summation of doctrines of Calvin's teaching initially. Calvin did not even have anything to do with the formation of these five points. No, these five points originated long after his death and were simply a concise response by church theologians to the controversy that took place in Holland in 1610. It was in 1610 that the followers of the recently deceased Jacobus Arminius drew up five articles of faith. These five articles were basically a summation of some of the principles of the teaching of Jacobus Arminius that his followers had felt the church needed to change their current position on. They wrote up these five points as a remonstrance, which is a protest. Now, before going any further, let's stop right here. Does anything strike you as odd about this scenario? Or do the actions of these followers of Arminius remind you of anything similar? Here are a couple of things that jump out at me regarding the action of these men. First off, their actions are in a way very similar to the actions of the reformer Martin Luther. In both cases, the parties presented a list of doctrinal contentions to the church in their area. This was a common thing to do if you had a grievance. You present your contentions in writing and seek to discuss them to work them out. Is that how disagreements with the church are commonly done these days? I would say not usually. Usually if someone disagrees with their church or some theologi- on some theological issue, rather than address it and seek to resolve it, they flee the church. These men, in this time, had more respect for the church as a whole and often sought to address the issues and seek to reform things from the inside. They weren't looking to necessarily rebel and leave. They were seeking to make changes that they felt were needed so as to reform the church from within. Now, it's not hard to understand that over time, any church can stray slowly from their doctrinal positions. It can start slow, gradually leads to a different place than they originally desired. And this is a a major reason why it's always good to be under the accountability of others, whether it's a denominational oversight committee or even just a board of leaders in your church. Because multiple eyes can often see things that maybe a single leader cannot. And they can point out things that may be in a blind spot. Likewise for a church body, it is always a good thing for church leadership to stop and evaluate their current positions to make sure traditions or desires of men have not caused them to begin to ever so slightly stray from their initial trajectory. So it is not always necessarily a bad thing when someone raises concerns or questions a church leadership over actions and doctrines. Men like Luther and even these Arminians were not wrong to bring up what they believed to be errors and areas that needed examined, and in an effort to seek discussions with the church. Then we must look at how the church responds to such things. That will end up revealing a lot about the ministry. This application is a little harder to apply today's climate, where there are so many different and totally independent churches. If a major concern came up, there are a few church councils to appeal to, like there used to be. I mean, some of the older denominations, like the Southern Baptists and the Presbyterian Methodists, they all have a higher court you can go, you know, appeal. You can appeal your case to. So, in most cases, though, there, if something is going amiss in the local church, there is accountability. In those cases, there's accountability that you could go to that they can investigate. Now, what tends to take place today, though, is usually one of two options: either the church leaders are not open to being questioned or the person doesn't even want to take the effort to petition for a possible change. Some leaders do not welcome being questioned or or any attempt for them to be held accountable. These are the things that scandals are made of. The independent attitude is strong and the leaders feel that they are above reproach. This attitude says a lot about the heart of that leader. Many times if you raise a question or concern, it may be taken as a threat and you're labeled as a troublemaker. This can ultimately end up with you being ousted or shunned enough that you end up feeling it is best to just leave and get away from the tension. The other option many take is simply to leave and go down the street, look for something better. Rather than engage with leadership and make the case for their position and spend time openly and lovingly going back and forth with them to present their defense of the position, the person just splits from the congregation. While with the church being so splintered into so so many different doctrines, different theologies, different service types, different congregational sizes, etc., if someone doesn't like this church, they just get down the street to find one more to their liking, and they just continue hopping from church to church, seeking to appease their personal desires. And if that fails, they just start their own church. <laughs> My family's had two similar issues that we've been through, both within the same denomination actually two congregations under the same local church council. Now, it never got taken to the council, but the individual congregations did handle these things quite differently. At one church we were seeking to join, there was this questionable doctrine that we held to. It was not in line with their creed. Their church leadership honestly had little to no knowledge of anything about this view. They weren't even sure how to proceed. Instead of asking me to engage and present a defense of my position so they could examine it, they called some of their friends in the ministry. They never inquired for me to explain anything. They simply, on the suggestion of others who they supposedly knew better, chose to dismiss, dismiss me as unorthodox based on the historical creeds that they held to. Now, they did not say we couldn't attend church. But they questioned if we could even join a church body when that church body was not even positive, that they could even call us brothers in Christ, based on us not perfectly aligning with the creeds. So essentially, they didn't think we could be called Christians for holding our view. And they suggested it might not be best for us to join in with the church that wouldn't even, couldn't even confirm us as being saved. Based on the fact that they were totally clueless on the topic, and were basically blindsided at the time, I can give them a little slack for their ignorance. I do fault them no for not seeking to look into it further themselves before making the decisions that they did. But again, in light of it all, they hadn't run into such a problem, and so they simply made a quick decision. Should they have, out of concern for my soul, assigned a few men to come alongside of me and study it out, to correct me where needed? Seems like the logical Matthew 18 process. We didn't push the issue, though, as we knew it was a conflict and it would be troublesome to everyone involved, and we were not really out to start trouble. If we were to have stood our ground and presented a defense, who knows where it would have gone? Would they have even sought to hear a defense or consider our point? Or were they totally closed off to that direction of thought? We'll never know. Have they since looked into this any further to be better informed? Who knows? Who knows? Instead, we chose to peaceably go no further in the process. We did not push the issue, did not demand to be heard. We weren't seeking to cause any major issues, so we returned to the church that we had been formerly attending. The only reason we were seeking to leave that church was due to the proximity of the church to where we lived. Now, when the same situation came up at our other church, it was handled quite differently. Maybe it was because we were already members and not just new people seeking to join Maybe since they already knew, maybe since we were already under their leadership, they knew as a good shepherd they should seek for what is best for us. I don't know exactly, but the leadership knew how to better, better handle it in the end. First, they sent two men to my house. One of them was my actual, our family's actual assigned church elder and a newer elder to the committee. These men came and sat in my living room to initially inquire as to the truth of the allegations at hand. They admitted to being a little surprised when I unashamedly explained that what they had been told was indeed true, for the person that told them that said he's probably going to backpedal, and that they were surprised I didn't try to cover it up or explain it away or, or, you know, in any way soften it. They asked me to answer a few initial questions. Biblical points that they saw were contradictory to my view. Many I answered on the spot. Others I told them needed a little more explaining and that I would submit answers to all that they asked. They assigned the new elder to my case to be the point of context in this matter. The poor guy, I don't think he really expected the response that he got or the wealth of information that he received from me in defense of our position. Pages and pages of materials on every topic that they asked and then some. In the end, though, I'm kind of doubting they really spent any time at all examining or attempting to understand, much less refute, my material unlike what happens in our story today. But surprisingly, they said they loved us. They were not barring us from attendance or from the fellowship or from the Lord's table, nor were they banning us from even talking about the subject to others, which was kind of startling. Why would they do that? The only thing they did do, because of the denomination's doctrinal statements and for them being under the accountability of the denomination, was they had, they had to remove us from being authorized teachers within the church. Both my wife and I had previously been Sunday school teachers. So other than that, it was business as usual. All of this to say, when a controversy or doctrinal concern is raised in the church, the leaders should take the time to consider or examine it and to respond accordingly. In the modern church, this is rarely what happens. But that was not how things were consistently held in the past. So, returning to our story we find these examples of men doing what was the acceptable method of basically seeking to restore what they thought was doctrinal purity. In Luther's case, the Roman Catholic Church responded more with arguments from tradition, though there were quite a bit of back-and-forth letters and responses from both sides over the few years after he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door. In the end, Luther was pretty much forced to step down from his position in the church and was cast out to do his own thing. When Luther started the trouble that he had, in the next county, country over, little John Calvin was a mere eight years old. By the time John Calvin came of age as a theologian, the spark that Luther had ignited was a fire of reformation that had influenced many in the surrounding states and areas. Calvin was instrumental in further solidifying a system of theology that became key features in the Reformed faith as a whole. But again... He never formulated any five-point system. Before we can get to that, though, we must back up a little in time and go way back to where these doctrinal issues actually began for the most part. It has been acknowledged by many, and as the late Princeton Theological Seminary Principal B.B. Warfield states, it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation. As Archie Sproul once commented, it is not only that Luther was an Augustinian monk or that Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian that provoked Warfield's remark. Rather, it was that the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. You see, Calvinism and Arminianism, the debate is actually traced back to the debate of the days of Augustine and Pelagius in many ways. Augustine of Hippo and British monk Pelagius lived in the late 4th and early 5th centuries. The core of their disagreement essentially centered around the topic of original sin. Pelagius denied such a notion and was a strong advocate for the belief in man having a free will. Augustine viewed man's will as being a slave to his original sin brought on by the fall of Adam and thus requiring divine intervention in spiritual matters. What became known as Pelagianism included additional beliefs that Pelagian had held, like asceticism, which is basically denying and living free of all worldly and sensual pleasures, kind of what you think monks do. As a whole, he and his views were deemed as heresy at the time by the Church of Rome. A later modified form of his belief, known usually as semi-Pelagianism, continued in some circles, and it too was ultimately condemned. But sadly, it did not go away. Again from Spro humanism in all its subtle forms recapitulates the unvarnished Pelagianism against which Augustine struggled. Though Pelagius was condemned as a heretic by Rome and its modified form, semi-Pelagianism, was likewise condemned by the Council of Orange in 529, the basic assumption of this view persisted throughout church history to reappear in medieval Catholicism Renaissance Humanism, Socinianism, Arminianism, and modern liberalism. The seminal thought of Pelagius survives today not as a trace or tangential influence, but is pervasive in the modern church. Indeed, the modern church is held captive by it. Theologian Adolf Harnock summarizes Pelagian's thought in this manner. Nature, free will, virtue, and law were strictly defined and made independent of the notion of God. They, that was the catch words of Pelagianism. Self-acquired virtue is the supreme good, which is followed by reward. Religion and morality lie in the sphere of the free spirit. They are at any moment by man's own effort. Pelagius believes that things like virtue, law, free will, exist and were attainable independent of any need of God and that man can self-accomplish these things and in response to them is rewarded by God. These things come from man's own effort and God rewards them when they're achieved. This is essentially the core of most man-centered work-based religions. Much of the issue started when Pelagius was in Rome and was appalled when he heard Augustine pray, asking Yahweh, O God, command what you wouldest and grant what thou dost command. Pelagius denied that performing God's commands required any divine gift or involvement, that if God requires some responsibility from man, that such a requirement assumes that man has the ability to fulfill such a command in his own power. This, in turn, means belief and faith are required to come from man without any divine assistance. Augustine opposed such a view, of course. For Pelagius, original sin... The sin of Adam affected Adam and Adam alone. Therefore, he believed that every infant born since is essentially in the same shape morally as Adam was before the fall. Thus, a denial of the passing of any effects from original sin altogether. He acknowledged that grace from God can help, but it is not necessary for man. He also held that the general nature of man was not changeable at all, but was, in essence, indestructibly good. That would be the full force of normal Pelagianism, and it was utterly condemned by Rome, as mentioned. What it altered when it comes to semi-Pelagianism is that it changes the view of original sin, agreeing that man has original sin, that his nature is not actually indestructibly good, but was, in fact, changed by the fall. But the view holds that while man's nature is fallen, there still remains with man the moral ability that was not affected by the fall. They would acknowledge that God's grace is required and beneficial, but that man must interact, react, and cooperate with God's grace. God's grace is necessary, but alone is not necessarily effective. Man must respond to it in his own free will in order to become effective for anything. This doctrine of the extent and effects of the fall is really at the core of the whole discussion between Augustine and Pelagius, Luther and Erasmus, and the Calvinist and Armenian debate, and it continues to this day. Through the years, it went from being deemed heretical most of the time that it popped up to eventually gaining worldwide acceptance in the church. And what, once was, and what was once historically the dominant view of soteriology has become a minority view and vehemently hated by many. Considered one of the pivotal and foundational unrefuted works, Martin Luther's seminal book, The Bondage of the Will, still stands the test of time and remains as a high watermark of the historical and biblical view of the will of fallen man. Now, picking up where we left off, we jump forward a thousand years from Augustine and Pelagius, and semi-Pelagianism is confronted again in the church. As mentioned, it was 1610, one year after the death of Jacobus Arminius, and his followers drew up five articles of faith. These were essentially a summation of principles of the teaching of Arminius that his followers felt the church needed to change their current position on. Like Luther, these five articles were written in the form of a protest seeking to challenge the current theological position of the church. At the time, the Church of Holland held to the confession to to their confessions, the Belgian Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. These were their officially expressed doctrinal positions, and the Arminians insisted that these doctrines be changed to conform to the doctrinal views outlined in their five points. The the Arminians disagreed on on main categories like the extent of divine sovereignty, human inability, the idea of unconditional election or predestination, on redemption being for particular people and not all, on the irresistibility of God's grace, and the eternal security of the saints. In Baker's Dictionary of Theology, Roger Nicole summarizes the five points of Arminianism in this manner. God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. Man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. This grace may be resisted. Whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. Now, they say that because really the last point was not fully decided upon in their group. Later on it became more solidified and was taught that indeed the truly, un, the truly regenerate believer could lose their faith and thus lose their salvation. Even to this day, though, in various churches, it is still a debated position from those who hold our, the Armenian doctrines, as of course many Armenians still believe in a once saved always saved position. Theologian J. I. Packer has analyzed these points in the remonstrance and philosophically explains this position as the theology which it contained, known historically as Arminianism, stemmed from two philosophical principles. First, that divine sovereignty is not compatible with human freedom, nor therefore with human responsibility. Second, that ability limits obligation. For these principles, the Arminians drew two deductions. First, that since the Bible regards faith as a free and responsible act, it cannot be caused by God, but is exercised independently of him. Second, that since the Bible regards faith as obligatory on the part of all who hear the gospel, ability must be universal. Hence, they maintained, Scripture must be interpreted to teach the following positions. Man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him nor is he ever so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by his foreseen that they will, on their own accord, believe. Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gifts of faith to anyone. There is no such gift. What it did was rather to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. And it rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fall away, those who fail will fall away and are lost. Thus, Arminianism made man's salvation, dependent ultimately on man himself, saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work and because his own, not God's, in him. So looking simply at these separate points, and looking at them from a philosophical cause and effect type angle they all may sound, you know, well and good if, you know, based on certain scriptures. But I've always had an issue with the logicality of them as a cohesive or connected system of steps. For instance, the point on election which Arminians say is determined by God's foreknowledge, meaning he looks down through history and in seeing how man will respond to the gospel gospel offer, he elects them or not. I know the main focus on these points is regarding God, man, and salvation, but what are the implications of this doctrine? How does this doctrine of foreknowledge affect other areas? First, it must be asked is the future that God evaluates for his decision a history that is in fact set in stone and unchangeable? Or is it just a possible future if man doesn't surprise God by changing his mind and resisting later on? If God is making the choice based on a definite and unchangeable future that he is able to view, then sure, that's one way to explain how God is all-knowing. He knows all because he sees all, and he knows how it all works out. And because he knows all, he can therefore tell mankind pieces of this future history under the guise of it being prophecy. However, if the future is indeed set in stone, doesn't that confuse and conflict with the need for the Arminian point that Christ died for all men in general? If God sees all who will for sure accept the gospel, accepting the gift of the blood of Christ by faith, and who ultimately perceive, per- persevere to glory, then why, demand is, why is there a demand in their view that Christ died for each and every man? Why would the Arminian view have any issue with the Calvinist view that says Christ died only for the elect? In the end... Don't both statements have the blood of Christ being only effectually applied to the same elect group of people? Sure, how they got elected is different, but isn't the group in the end comprised of the same people in the future if the future is fully seen and knowable? Is this point about who he died for even necessary? Think further with me on this. If election is based on an unchangeable foreseen future and is only for those who will ultimately be saved, then what about the point regarding man being capable of resisting God's will? If God foresaw an unchangeable future, then he already knows who's going to resist, and so he wouldn't even elect them to salvation to begin with. And therefore, since he foresaw all of that, what purpose does it serve to mention perseverance in the plan? Yes, it was a topic that Arminians were still split on, but really either version of the view is either one necessary if God already foresaw the definite future. If once saved, they would definitely persevere. God already saw that. He knows that. And he has elected them based on that. Likewise, if he foresaw that they would eventually choose to walk away from the faith, surely he would have never elected them to begin with, right? So, is the point about resisting grace even needed in this case? Honestly, if the future is set in stone and God knows it, then is any point other than election truly needed? Wouldn't he only elect who he foresaw wouldn't resist, who would choose to receive, who would have the blood of Christ atoned for them, and who would persevere to be saved and glorified. I know these five positions were written up as a response to and a correction of the key doctrines of the church that were being challenged by the Arminians. So yes, I understand why they exist in this form. But in the end, when considered as a system, don't they all seem to hinge on how your view of the idea of God's foreknowledge is? And if you believe in a concrete future view, wouldn't election really be all you need? Considering all of this, it seems that the idea of a definite future being foreknown, foreknown is really not fitting in line with the Armenian system. Plus, we know a set-in-stone future is not generally the view held by Armenians in the modern times anyway. In the Armenian system, they see God changing his mind and his plans often. Also, we know that the greatest majority of modern Christians, whether they'd understand their position enough to admit it, would have to reject that he sees a future set in stone. The most popular eschatological view of the day, believed by most all Arminians, is the view known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism plainly teaches that God had a plan of salvation, but it was thwarted by the will of man, and so had to make a new plan. They say he chose a specific time to send his only son to save his people, but when his people instead rejected and killed his son, he had to switch gears and go with the plan B, and he created this thing called the church. <clears throat> he still has a plan for his original people, though without any Messiah this time, obviously, because that ship has sailed. And since God can only know the future, can, cannot know the future for sure. I guess he waits and plans for a chance at a new attempt in the future. But honestly, if God is able to only foresee a possible future, can plan A ever be planned with any definite expected success? If plan A was thwarted in the past, how how can it ever be guaranteed to pass at some future point? How can any supposed future prophetic events ever be planned and fulfilled with any certainty in a dispensational system. He may reveal his desired plan, but wouldn't it have to be generic, nebulous, and open-ended as far as the nature and timing of the fulfillment? Wouldn't it mean he can never know when or how or even if it would ever be accomplished? It's most all dependent on man's work and cooperation. But what if he never gets that? If someone holds to an Arminian view of God and man's free will, is it even possible for them to align themselves with any view of biblical eschatology or prophetic system in general, aside from one that's based around indefinite and unpredictable future plans? I'm not sure how, may, how anything else would really work. If God cannot override man's will, then man can always thwart any plan of God, right? In the end, if man is free, and if man can resist God's work, then can God know very much of anything with any certainty? Can he plan anything definitively? Can he predict anything? Can he make any concrete plans come to pass regarding mankind? Dispensationalism does seem to be properly applying their Arminian logic in this situation. Man's free will resisted God's initial plan as their theology teaches. Can it be applied any other way? In this view, can God ever accomplish his plan without infringing on man's freedom? In essence, can any prophecy of a future for mankind ever be stated that is not simply a dream or desire that God hopes one day man may allow him to accomplish? God can manipulate the material world to do things in his plan, but can he ever do anything with man knowing man may resist and thwart without infringing again upon man's ability? I guess he could pull his plan in motion, he could bring judgment and wrath on the land, he could send plagues and everything that people associate that the book of Revelation teaches. But in the end, it seems he can never do anything to guarantee that anyone will bow the knee and proclaim him as Lord. It seems there would be no guarantee that anyone would accept his gift and enter into his kingdom. If God is unable to force any change on the will of man, then what other conclusion can be reached? And since the future foresaw is not set in stone, can God elect based on foreknowledge when that foreknowledge is only a possibility? What if everyone he elects ends up changing their minds and walking away from their faith? What good the election and blood of Christ serve to them? In this scenario, are we not left with the real possibility that Christ could have suffered and died and ended up with no one ever making a free will choice to accept the gift and persevere to glory? The logical conclusions of such a view are quite staggering, and it does and doesn't it remove all future hope in anything from God? Okay, let's get back on track. The system is what it is. It was sent to the church with the insistence that it replace the confessions of the Holland church. This was 1610. Eight years later, in 1618, a synod was called together in Dort to examine these views proposed by the Arminians. Eight years. Can you imagine waiting eight years for your grievances to be addressed? (laughs) I'm pretty sure they would have started a new church two or three times in that time frame, so... My question is, though, were they still going to church during those eight years? On November 13, 1618, the Senate convened. It was a group of 84 Dutch delegates, which included 18 secular commissioners and 27 delegates from various German states, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. For seven months, these delegates met in 154 sessions to consider the matter, the last one being May 6, 1619. That's a lot of time to consider the five points. In the end, the Senate had given a very close examination to the five points which had been advanced by the remonstrants and had compared the teaching advanced in them with the testimony of Scripture. Failing to reconcile that teaching with the Word of God, which they had definitely declared could alone be accepted by them as the rule of faith, they unanimously rejected them. They felt, however, that a mere rejection was not sufficient. It remained for them to set forth the true Calvinistic teaching in relation to these matters which has been called in question. This they proceeded to do, embodying the Calvinistic position in five chapters which have ever since been known as the five points of Calvinism. So over the course of 154 meetings, 84 people, including many secular leaders, examined and heard the case, and they came away unanimously rejecting all five points when they compared them to Scripture. So this is not just some body of staunch Calvinists that examine these things. This is a diverse group of people from all walks of life, some not even Christian, and it was all laid out before them and they rejected it fully. These doctrines were rejected by the early church when under the name Pelagianism. They were again rejected under the name Semi-Pelagianism and a thousand years later rejected yet again under the name of Arminianism. At this point though, let us just go ahead and take a look side by side, a run through of a comparison of each of the points a little more than the brief thing we looked at earlier, and the response that was given to them. So we'll start with the first point, the Arminian point number one, free will or human ability. This is a little more detailed uh, expression of what they believed. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power either to cooperate with God's Spirit and be regenerated or to resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the Spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe. For faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. That's contrary to what you gave in your message the other day. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Calvin's the point that they responded to, total inability or total depravity. Because of the fall, man is unable to himself, of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. He is not free. It is the bondage. It is in bondage to the evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes a sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. And moving on to their second, their view on conditional election. God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world was based on his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew, did he really know, would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw, and upon which he based his choice, was not given to the sinner by God, it was not created by the regenerating spirit of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man to determine who would believe, and therefore who would be elected for salvation. God chose those whom he knew would of their own free will, choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. And in response, God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon and and virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those who God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing repentance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Point three, universal redemption or general atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe in him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sin. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. And the Calvinistic response, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith, which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, thereby guaranteeing their salvation. Point 4 in the Armenian system, the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. <clears throat> the Spirit calls inwardly all of those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can. He does all that he can. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. Please come. <clears throat> I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> but inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's calling. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow him to have his way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be, and often is, resisted and thwarted by man. kind of a lot when you have to take it all together. Calvinism's response to that, the efficacious call of the Spirit or irresistible grace. In addition to the outward general call of salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be, and often is, rejected. However, the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in His work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to freely come and willingly to Christ, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace therefore is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of to those to whom it is extended. And then we come to point five, and again, this was kind of debated. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. So again, this point was not agreed upon by those who followed the teaching. Some believe in the traditional, once saved, always saved. Either way, the Calvinistic response. All those who who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, given faith by the Spirit, are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. So there you have it, the basic principles of the protest and the response that was given to them from the Synod in 1619. So the five points of Calvinism were not the creation or creed formed by Calvin directly, or even the church initially, but were instead the response to the protested five points presented to the church at the time. Theologian J.I. Packer, again, in speaking of these two sets of doctrinal thoughts, summarizes by saying The difference between them is not primarily one of emphasis, but of content. One proclaims a God who saves, the other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One view, Calvinism, presents the three great acts of the Holy Trinity for the recovering of lost mankind, election by the Father, redemption by the Son, and calling by the Spirit, as directed towards the same persons and as securing their salvation infallibly. The other view, Arminianism, gives each act a different reference. The objects of redemption being all mankind, of calling, those who hear the gospel, and of election, those those hearers who respond, and denies that any man's salvation is secured by any of them. The two theologies thus conceive the plan of salvation in quite different terms. One makes salvation depend on the work of God, the other on the work of man. One regards faith as part of God's salvation gift, the other as man's own contribution to salvation. One gives all the glory of saving believers to God, and the other divides the praise between God, who, so to speak, built the machinery of salvation, and man, who by believing, operated. Plainly, these differences are important, and the permanent value of the five points as a summary of Calvinism is that they make clear the points at which and the extent to which these two conceptions are at variance." <clears throat> now, while we have these this five-point system, it must never be thought that all Reformed theology and thought, or everything that's labeled as Calvinism, is contained in just these five points. They are not a full creed uh, or a detailed, all-encompassing system of doctrine. They are simply a response to the five points in question. <clears throat> And in essence, some have pointed out that these five points of Calvinism are really just one main point divided into five inseparable functions. Each of the points are connected to the whole, and if one point fails, the system collapses. The one underlying point and a foundational truth that fuels Reformed thought is that God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, that's not my words, I'm sorry, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing. The Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming. The Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and the Son by renewing. Saves. He does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life and glory. Plans, achieves, and communicates redemption. Calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Sinners. Men, as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will, or better, their spiritual lot. This is the one point of Calvinistic soteriology which the five points are concerned to establish, and Arminianism in all of its forms to deny. Namely, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Arminianism was the minority doctrine throughout much of church history. It has only been in the last century and a half that that, along with dispensationalism, have taken a major foothold and grown to be the more dominant view in the church these days. Most people accept it as they, it's all they really know. Very few have taken the time to study its history and the principles upon which it was rejected time and time again in history. When they hear the doctrines of Pelagian, they are quick to reject that notion, not always understanding how their belief comes from that belief. As Sproul put it, modern evangelicals repudiate unvarnished Pelagianism and frequently semi-Pelagianism as well. It is insisted that grace is necessary for salvation and that man is fallen. The will is acknowledged to be severely weakened, even to the point of being 99% dependent upon grace for its liberation. But that 1% of unaffected moral ability or spiritual power, which becomes the decisive difference between salvation and perdition, is the link that preserves the chain to Pelagius. We have not broken free from the Pelagian captivity of the church. That 1% is the little something Luther sought to demolish because it removes the sola from sola gratia and ultimately from the sola from sola fide. The irony may be that though modern evangelicals loudly and repeatedly denounce humanism as the mortal enemy of Christianity, it entertains a humanistic view of man and of the will at its deepest core. And with that, we will end our brief little history lesson today of what we call Calvinism. To Yahweh be the glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that we don't have to depend upon ourselves. We thank you so much that we can trust your word. We can trust your predictions. We can trust your future. We can trust your past. We can trust your plan. We just are so thankful, Lord, that your word is there to guide us, that we can put our faith into it, that we can see how you worked, a plan that you had made from the beginning. We may not always understand it. We may not be able to reconcile what we think on one aspect to another, but we understand that you are in control, and we don't have to understand everything in order to put our faith and trust in you. You saved us. We thank you so much for that salvation. We pray that you would help us and not take it for granted, but that we would make better and make our calling and election sure by our lifestyles and the way that we honor you in all that we do. We thank you so much for these blessings. Amen. Yeah, I don't know. That question slide keeps popping up in there, but I don't know. I am not not taking questions. Gary's always going to be first. Go ahead. It seems like uh, the Armenian view denies just some of the basic attributes of God. Mm-hmm. His omnipotence and mm-hmm. omnipresence and mm-hmm. sovereignty. And mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they changed those views, of course. Um, he, all, he knows everything because he saw it all. And I guess because he saw it all, he's everywhere at one time because he can see it all. I've heard it laid out that time doesn't matter to God. It's just like it's like here, and He's here. He can be anywhere, and He's just He's omnipresent. He's always there because there's no time. So, oh, we got hands everywhere. I see that hand. I see that hand. Now you said at the beginning that you're not taking a side. I know. I know. Okay. But you seemed a little confused okay. to me. No. 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 Hold on. Hold on. Hold on, I didn't say that actually. Let me read. Let, let me let me tell you what I did say. Okay. I am not going to be defending from Scripture uh, either oh, principle. Oh, and if oh, you recall back, I never mentioned one it. Scripture. <laughs> <laughs> I did take issue with logic. I took issue with logic and philosophy. Okay, point taken. <laughs> yes, Dan. I just want to thank you. Uh, you know, I've always believed, almost from a young believer, about Calvin, but I didn't know how it came about the five See, points. that's You were the message. You're the reason. Thank you, God. You gave me that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, he gave you two. Okay. You can give me the money after. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, we have so many people that watch us all the time and, you know, I'm sure they hear these terms but how often does anybody really stop and explain? Who's this Calvin character? Who's this Armenian well, character? We're probably familiar with the terms, quite familiar with them but knowing that we're... And the were, doctrines behind them but not... Out, were, yeah. And that they mm-hmm. were A creation of Calvin or Arminian. That's what I was doing. It's just a history lesson. That's what I'm saying. Hopefully, people listen because they may not know. Not that I'm expecting to change necessarily what they viewed, but they have to know where Mm -hmm. they came from and Mm -hmm. how they originated and why we do call Mm them what they're called.